part two. I'm so glad that you came back. Uh, I noticed that we are dropping in attendance from last week, and I think that must have something to do with what I said last week, so I apologize. Basketball tournament. Oh, thank God. Okay, good. It wasn't me. It was you. How many of you guys in the room, have you heard that before? It's not me, it's you? Yep. Okay. Anyway. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. One of our leaders will pass one out to you. Tonight's message is in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. If you're there, say there. If you're not there, say hold on. All right, I'll wait. In the meantime, while you are looking, the title of this message is Seeking the One. O-N-E, not W-O-N. Seeking the One. Tonight we will embark on a mystical journey to find out who everyone is supposed to marry one day. Dun, dun, dun. Amazing. No, I'm just kidding. If you're there, say there. If you're not there, say hold on. Oh, good. Most of you. Okay. Well, Genesis chapter 2 will be in verses 15 through 25. This is part 2 in our dating series. And last week... We learned about what dating is culturally and what dating should be for. We know the Bible is silent as it pertains to dating because dating didn't exist in Jesus' day. But we can still make some observations about the cultural thing of dating or courting, whatever you want to call it, and ask, is the purpose for marriage? And if not, then God really doesn't recognize it, right? So you have single people, married people. That's the only distinction God makes. So dating must have marriage in mind. And we gave some good parameters as to what a dating relationship kind of is for. And tonight, we're going to learn about what kind of person you should be seeking if you are looking to enter into a marriage covenant one day. So seeking the one. Hoping by the end of this evening to be able to give you some good guidelines for both guys and girls as it pertains to scripture for the person that you should one day wed. In addition to that, we're going to go over even the purpose of marriage itself. Why is it a thing? What does it describe? What is it for? We find that in the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2. In fact, the entire Bible is a story of love. It's a story of marriage between Jesus and the church, us, his bride. And so Genesis, it begins with a marriage story. Revelation, it begins with a marriage, uh, it ends with a marriage story. All about marriage. And here we're going to learn about the first marriage in Genesis chapter 2. We'll read verses 15 through 25. We'll pray and we'll dive in. Verse 15 says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. And all the men in the room said, amen. 
I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Lord, we pray this evening that you would speak to us. Lord, help us with this decision, Lord. The second most important decision we can make in our lives is who we're going to spend the rest of our lives with. So we pray, Lord, that you help us to, to navigate these waters wisely, that we would seek your parameters and seek your favor in every relationship we have, especially the one that uh, matters the most here on earth. So we pray, Lord, that you bless this study, give me wisdom, in Jesus' name, amen. I think one of the questions that all of us think about all the time, those of us that are single, right, especially when you're a teenager, is who am I going to spend the rest of my life with? You're thinking about the one. Who is the one person that you're supposed to marry? Who is the one person that you should be seeking? And so especially as you get older and then you actually are able to date people, you can drive places, you can, you can uh, potentially get married. When you're able to do those things, you start increasingly thinking about those things, especially if many of your friends are in dating relationships. So as we're approaching this, I think it's important for us to talk about this, especially here at the study, because where else are we going to talk about it, right? Where else are we going to talk about the importance of seeking God's favor and blessing in your marriage relationship, in your dating relationship? And so I think it's important to right off the bat talk about one of the cultural observations which is plaguing, I think, our youth groups and also I think just the culture in general. I think teenagers in public school, whatever, non-Christians, Christians alike, people are looking to a relationship to complete them. That's what's happening. They're looking for their other half, the missing puzzle piece. And that's why this is all that people can think about is what will it be like to be married? What will it be like uh, for ladies on their wedding day? What will it be like men to be able to have that companion? And so we're thinking about these things. It's plaguing our minds. And we got to be careful that we are not letting that become the priority in our life. Why? Because no human being can complete you the way that God can. And so what happens is we take a good thing, which is relationships, and we make it everything, which is actually very disturbing. Because when we do that, we're actually replacing God with a human being. And then we put all of our hopes, dreams, and expectations on a human being who can't ultimately fulfill us. I say these, these things all the time, but it's important, especially for those of you that grew up in the church, for you to know this. Know it deep down inside your heart, and you can share it with some of your friends that don't know this. So many people are chasing after a relationship, hoping that this person will complete them. We take a gift from God, we take a good thing, and we make it an ultimate thing. We make it everything. Uh, there's a pastor named John Mark Comer. He made this great observation. When the people of Israel were leaving Egypt, remember that they were, um, 
they were waiting for Moses to come down from Mount Sinai to bring back the Ten Commandments, etc. And while he was up there, what happened? They made a golden calf. Now this pastor observed, he said, where did they get the gold from? They got the gold as they plundered the Egyptians. Remember, God allowed them, he gave them a gift of gold and they made it into an idol. And by way of illustration, I think that's many times what people do with a good gift that God has given us, relationships, and we make it an idol. We make it a false god. We make it all of our dreams and all of our hopes, we make it the object of those things. And that's very dangerous because, number one, that person can never complete you, right? You're always going to feel a little bit empty. They're always going to fail you. And what's going to happen when you put all of your hopes and dreams into the person? You think that they're perfect. They're never going to betray me like these other people. I don't have to ever worry about ever being depressed or all these different things ever again. When you put all of your hopes and trust in that person, when they do fail you, then you've just fallen into despair. When our idols break, that's what happens. Because that was our only hope. And now you have nothing else. And now you don't know who you are anymore. You're just completely disoriented. And this is not how God would have us to live our lives. So we should put our hope in God alone. There's another pastor who put it this way. I thought it was great. The Bible, as we just read in this passage, it does not say that God took two halves and made them whole. It says he took the two and they became one. See, you are complete in Christ. If you put your faith in Jesus, this is what Colossians says in chapter 2, verse 9. For in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Jesus, in other words, is housed. In Jesus lives the fullness of the Godhead. And you're complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. See, if it was true that another person could complete you, a human being, then that means that people that lose their husbands or wives to cancer are actually incomplete people. People who can't bear children, people who can't find a relationship, single people, they actually are always incomplete. They'll never be able to be fulfilled. But actually, what's true is when you find your completion in Jesus, then every relationship you can be focused on giving. And that's the distinction I think we should be making right off the bat tonight is that marriage, dating, a relationship for the Christian should always be to give. Isn't that what we want? When we're in a relationship, we don't want to just take from people. That's what, that's what the world does. And, by the way, that's what's happening when you're seeing all these sexual abuse scandals is the ultimate outcome of the person who always lives for himself. The ultimate outcome of the person who always tries to take, always tries to escalate, always wants but never actually obtains what he really wants. This is what happens. Manipulation, cheating, all different kinds of horrors happen in relationships because people are selfish. But because we are, as believers in Jesus, complete in Jesus, now all we have to do is give. We give love because the massive amount of love that we've received in Jesus overflows from our heart into the hearts of others as we learned on a retreat not too long ago. So let's start, let's start talking in this passage about the design of companionship. Before we talk about what that person may be like, first we need to talk about the purpose of the relationship altogether. So look at verse 18 again. What we see is it says, The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. So what we see here is that God created Adam in the garden. Right? He gave him food to eat. 
He gave him friends and the animals. But he said, it is not good that man should be alone. God made everything good, everything perfect. And he, he notices himself. God noticed there's one thing that was not good, and that was the fact that man was alone. This does not necessarily mean singleness. It just means that men are men and women are made to live in relationships. I always think it's funny when people say, like, my relationship with God is personal. I don't really go to church. Like, no one actually lives that way in any other aspect of life. I was with a friend this morning, and I was talking to him as we were, we were taking a walk. And I said to him, because he's a pretty radical guy. Everything he does to the extreme, he just goes for it, and he's, he loves the Lord, and he's very successful. And in talking to him, I said, do you have a favorite sports team? He's like, oh, I love the Jets. I'm like, okay, great. So as much as you love the Jets and as radical as, as a person you are, how likely are you to go to a Jets game alone? He says, oh, I'd almost never. Right, so why do we think that church should be done alone? Why do we think that we go to a service alone? Why do we advertise things saying, hey, you should come by yourself? That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is just as you would do anything in a community, you don't go to a restaurant to eat by yourself. I mean, sometimes you do if you're like, you're just really hungry. Like sometimes I do if I'm traveling, I go to a restaurant by myself. But out of necessity, not because I want to. If you're going to Buffalo Wild Wings, you're getting some of their Asian Zinger wings, which are like amazing actually, and I don't even like spicy stuff. You want to have other people to share that experience with. And this is how man was created, to be in relationship with others. No matter what you're doing, restaurants, you're going to a game, you're going to church, you're evangelizing. Jesus sent people out two by two, his disciples, to reach other people. And so we should also have those relationships in everything that we do. It is not good that man should be alone. And so God saw the problem, and he says that I will make a helper comparable to him. Now, why, why is it that man couldn't find a helper? He had a whole bunch of animals, right? There's plenty of single people that have a lot of cats. And it seems to be a perfect helpmate, you know? I'm kidding. Um, what he's saying here is that there is, for the man, an importance for us to be able to relate with each other in that special relationship that God has created inside each and every one of us. That we're to share in the love of Christ. He's not inhabiting the animals, you know? God has created your soul unique in the image of God, and we're to share and cherish that with one another. So, so some of us are concerned about who we're going to date and who we're going to marry, but notice that it is God who saw the problem, and it's God who found the solution. Do you see that in the text? That God saw that it was not good, and he says, I will make him a helper. I remember when I was like, I don't know. I want to say I was a lot younger, but I was probably like 10. I was probably older than I, I think I was. But I used to pray for friends all the time, every day, because I had no friends. I was homeschooled. I didn't um, have like a community center. I didn't really, you know, have church friends. I was terrified of people at church. And so I would pray for friends all the time, and God gave me a friend. Across the street, one day I just saw like a, a boy my age who was having a basketball. He was like sitting on, on the sidewalk, and he was just like holding it by himself. And then my parents are like, look, Alan, it's a friend. I'm like, thank you, Jesus. I found a friend, you know. <laughs> so God is the one who brought the first companion to Adam. John Piper is a pastor, and he has this amazing quote that I always love to, to share. And it's this. Marriage is God's doing because he personally took the dignity of being the first father to give away the bride. Genesis chapter 2, verse 22. Isn't that awesome? 
It says, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. He didn't hide her and make Adam seek. He made her and he brought her. Now, this is consistent with the rest of Scripture. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 14 says this. Houses and riches are inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. So here's the first thing that we need to take, take note of for, for this evening, and that's this. A helpmate, a companion, is a precious gift from God. A helpmate is a precious gift from God. And we are to treat these individuals as such. Meaning, when you are given a wife, when you're given a husband, treat them as a gift. Treat them with the love, the attention, as if God himself were handing him or handing her off to you. Recognizing that we don't deserve it. What we deserve is punishment in hell for all of eternity, for our sins. And God gives us eternal life and gives us a person that we can share this life with. That's amazing. And that is a gift from God. Now, that does not mean that men are just to sit around and just wait for God to just send that person magically from the heavens, right? Here's your gift. And it like floats down or something. But actually, what we see in Scripture, too, is the different roles that men and women have. Um, that in Scripture, you see that God always initiates and people always respond. Think of one thing that happens in all of the world between you and God where you initiate. Nothing, right? Like even when you pray, even when you read your Bible, it's in response to what God has already done. God's done the work on the cross. He's finished it. Everything we do, even love itself, is in response to what God has done. And so since God, as the groomsman, is initiating with the church who is his bride, we also, as men, should be taking the lead in initiating the conversation, initiating the, the relationship, and women are to respond. So that, it means that you don't try to force God's hand. You're not trying to make things happen. You're not trying to rush things. But you're waiting on the Lord. At the same time, you're willing to initiate. Take courage because you're free to fail. John Mark Homer also has this quote. He says, as followers of Jesus, male and female, we are called to live by faith. That means we can risk. We live in a world where the tomb is empty and anything is possible. The gospel gives us the freedom to fail, whether we succeed or not, whether the business venture works out or not, whether she says yes or he doesn't return your call. It doesn't matter. Our self-worth doesn't come from any of that, which means we are free to risk, to fail, to get up and try again. I love that. See, if your identity is in Jesus, it's a freeing thing because you don't need anyone to, to respond. You don't, need, you don't need anyone in particular to like you or to show affection towards you because you get everything you need from Jesus. So we are free to fail, free to take risks. That doesn't mean that you're weird and creepy and stalkerish, but you can actually put down your cell phone and walk up to a girl and say, you know what, we should get coffee sometime if my parents say that's okay. Okay, verse 19. Next it says, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that's what its name was. So Adam gave names to all cattle, the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. 
And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. He slept, took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she has been taken out of man. Okay. So the ESV study Bible has this note on this passage. It says, helper is the one who supplies strength in the area that is lacking in the helped. The term does not imply that the helper is either stronger or weaker than the one helped. Fit for him or matching him is not the same as like him. A wife is not her husband's clone but compliments him. So when God made this helpmate, notice it was a complimentary helper. Okay? God did not create another man. He created a completely different type of creature, which is a, a woman. So biblical marriage is saying this. When it's one man and one woman, what it's saying is neither, neither gender, neither sex is better than the other, and we both need each other to, to thrive. We can only procreate if we have a man and we have a woman. And this is what God's model is for humanity. Now, that's not to say that one is better than the other. Just because the man came first doesn't mean that he's better or worse. It just means that he is to take the lead. And that is the model that we are to have in the home in relationships. But it does not mean that he is superior or inferior. Now, as it pertains to leadership, someone always has to lead. Uh, there was an illustration I heard once where it says, you know, in order for two people to dance, one has to lead. Doesn't mean the person's better or worse, but one has to lead. Because if both lead, it's going to be a nightmare. If neither leads, it's not going to be beautiful. So, in God's kingdom, the primary role of leaders is to serve others. We are to be living our lives in, kind of, in, in such a way as men that we are taking the lead and we are being able to cover the woman. We are there to pursue her, we're there to help her, and she is there to compliment the man. So let's look at verse 24. Verse 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So we see here that there's a leaving of your family. Now it doesn't mean that you never talk to your, your mom and dad ever again, but what it means is, your primary responsibility is no longer to your father and mother, as it has been when you're a child, right? Honor your father and mother. Now your primary responsibility is to care for your husband or care for your wife. Jesus left his heavenly father to be joined to his bride, the church, and this is the model set for us, to reflect the glory of God and to be joined to that relationship with him. So what we see is that there's a helpmate that God has given us someone to compliment, not to completely shatter, not a clone, but a helpmate who's complimentary in that calling. And we also see the unity that you leave your father and mother and you're joined to one another. And that's what unity is. And the purpose of that unity, as you'll see later on as we read Ephesians 5, is to reflect the glory of God. This is why the first command is to be fruitful and multiply. As they had kids, they would have more, more people, more human beings to reflect the image of God and his goodness and be able to share that in the world and, and have dominion over it. So, this is God's doing. Verse 25. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. 
So a marriage should be a place where a couple can be completely vulnerable with each other. I'm really glad I could read that verse and no one laughs. Like, we're, we've gotten past that stage. Like, I can say the word naked, and I was like, naked, naked, right? But the idea there is really important because marriage should be the place where you can share everything with one another and not have to fear whether or not that person's going to leave you. That you can commit to one another and not worry whether or not that person's going to cheat on you or his, their love is going to be conditional. But you've made a covenant, you've made a commitment and you're honoring that, saying we are in it till death do us part. So imagine a relationship where everything about you is known to that other person. You are free to share in every flaw, every mistake, every imperfection, and yet you're still free from shame. There's something weird about staring at one another, right? Like if you have a person staring at you, you're just like, what the heck is that person doing? They're looking at you, right? There's a part of us that always feels the shame of like, what if people see who I really am. And we feel the need to cover that. Always need to do something about that. This is what happened with Adam and Eve. Once they had sinned, they realized that they were naked and they sought a covering for themselves. But the good news is that God created a better covering, animal skin, to make sure that they were warmed and to make sure that they were covered from their shame. And this is what God has done for us and we are to do for each other. In marriage, we're not supposed to expose our shame and go off blabbing up, you know, everything that is the fault and flaw of the, the husband or wife, but actually covering it because we know it and yet we still love them anyway. Now, this is an illustration, once again, of a relationship with God, that we can be completely open with God and yet he still loves us. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says this, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. I love that. And maybe I've said it before, but it's worth saying again. That there are things that God knows that you've done that you don't even know that you've done. And yet he forgives you even for those sins. Oftentimes we, we come before God and we're like, God, I'm filthy. God, I'm a terrible be human being. I've done all these terrible sins. And it's like, well, I know, but like, you're actually a lot worse than you thought. But the good news is you're actually more loved than you thought. Because even those sins he's covered. God died for you at your worst not when you were performing your best. None of us sought after God, and yet God sought after us. He pursued us and made us lovely. He made us lovable. When there's nothing within us to love, God chose us to be the object and affection of his love for his glory and for our good, right? But he does that to make us beautiful, which is a wonderful thing. Okay, so in that short amount of time, what we've learned thus far is that God has uh, designed for man that we are to have a helpmate, right, but a complementary helpmate for unification so that we're committed to one another without shame, without guilt. And that's to be for God's glory to, to be able to do more good in the world together than you do apart. So now the question is, what kind of person should I be looking to marry? Should I be looking to be in a relationship with? Which brings us to the ultimate question. Is there a one? Is there a soulmate? 
Do each and every one of us have one of those? Well, I hate to break it to you, but I don't think that the, the, the concept that many of us know as the one is really biblical. In that some people believe that there's one person that you're supposed to marry, and if you miss them, you're supposed to be single for the rest of your life, right? So you have to find the one. Who is the one that God wants to marry, uh, wants me to marry? Um, this actually, this concept came from Greek mythology, not actually from the Bible, where there's this weird belief in summary. It's like Zeus saw human beings and thought they were way too powerful, so he's just like, I'm going to like cut them in half. And so they're going to have to like search for one another until they die, but they're like weaker without each other and just kind of strange. I don't even know if that's accurate, but I read it in a book somewhere, so it's probably true. Here's the problems with that view. If there is a soulmate, a person that you're meant to, you're destined to be with, and if you miss them out, you're, uh, you're in trouble. Um, well, that means that if you marry the wrong one, you just ruined it for everybody. Because you married somebody else's one. And now they can't marry the right one, and they have to marry somebody else, and it just ruins the whole thing. Also, like what happens if you get remarried? You had two? And then most people have one? That's kind of strange. And to think of, like, there's billions of people on the planet. So if there's 7 billion people, I guess, like, you can only marry half of them, right? If you potentially could marry half of the people alive on the planet, you're telling me there's only one person out of the billions and billions and billions of people? Probably not. But then you look at the scripture, and like, what about Isaac and Rebecca? What about Mary and Joseph? Are we saying that Mary really could have, you know, married anybody? Obviously not, because the angel told Joseph to take Mary as his wife. Obviously, with the story of Isaac and Rebecca, he was seeking after, and then his servant went and says, oh, if she dips her, you know, if she uh, gives water to the horses and stuff, then that's supposed to be the person that he's supposed to marry, so I'm going to go find her. It's like a bonkers story, right? So you look at that and like, see, there is a one, and maybe God wants me to marry this person. I'm going to pray about it. He's going to reveal them in a dream, and I'm going to go find him and tell him that I have to marry them. I know a pastor friend of mine, his wife was told by a different guy when they were, you know, everybody was single, that a guy told her, like, God told me that I'm supposed to marry you. Go, oh, well, he hasn't told me that. Okay. And they didn't get married. So I, didn't, I never got that far. When I was 15, I told a girl that I thought God was leading me to date her. And I am thankful it was not that person. But here, here's, here's an illustration. <laughs> here's the illustration hold on the only reason this this sounds terrible too i i don't want to like shift the blame but i had a friend who told me to say that and i was like he seems like a wise guy he loves jesus that's probably a good thing to say and it didn't work don't listen to your friend's advice that's all i'm saying find an older wiser person who's been through it a couple times ask them for their advice not that your friends are going to give bad advice but like Apparently, my friends definitely didn't help me at the time. Okay, so here's, here's what we need to know. Um, we're not the shepherding movement. If you talk to us leaders, we're not going to say, like, you sh I forbid you from dating that person. You should marry this person instead. That's weird. That's what cults do. You recognize that? I remember reading in a Jehovah's uh, Witness magazine, The Watchtower. They have, like, a, a magazine that's, like, the Bible, but it's called, like, The Watchtower. And then when I worked at the gas station for five years, they used to hand them to me. And in one issue, I just decided to, like, one day read it and stuff. And it gave instructions on what to do if you're leading a girl on. And oh, my goodness. In reading this, 
It was like, if you discover that you are leading a girl on, the first step that you have to take is go immediately to her parents and apologize. Like, <laughs> can you imagine that conversation? You don't even talk to the girl. She's like, you know, I just, I, I really like you and stuff. And you're like, oh, I don't like her back. You, like, find her parents and like, yeah, I just, I don't know. I'm just so attractive and your, your daughter just, like, really just likes me and I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I'm so attractive, but I don't like her. Imagine how weird that would be. So that is not what we do, okay? What we do here and what we emphasize is where Scripture is silent, we're silent too. But what we're going to do is give you biblical guidelines to be able to make wise choices. That's what we hope to do, and that's what you have the freedom to do in Jesus, is you have the freedom to choose, along with God's guidelines, who you are to marry. Now, what are those guidelines? There's only one. Did you know that? There's only one guideline in the Bible about who you're supposed to marry. Here it is. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. It says this. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Now, there's one guideline. And it is the person that you marry should be a Christian. Now, I know what you're thinking, because a lot of people are like, well, this person's really nice, and my parents weren't saved when they got married, and it worked out, and I know Bobby married this one woman, Helga, and totally worked out. I get it, okay? But for every exception to the rule, I can find you five examples where it didn't work out. So, all I'm saying is, that's what the Bible says. You can argue with me. You can't really argue with the Bible, right? When it talks about being unequally yoked, the whole idea, because that's like Christianese, I try as much as possible not to speak Christianese, so if I say something you don't understand, just tell me. But in the Bible, in, in biblical times, they would have a yoke, which is a wooden beam, and they would have cattle, farming culture, and what they would have is, if they're carrying a load, you have two oxen carrying the same yoke, right? You, even if the strengths are different between the animals, you have two different kinds of oxen, one's really fed really well and one's not really fed really well, the whole point is you don't take an oxen and yoke it with a rabbit. You don't take two completely different kinds of creatures and put them together under the same yoke. Why? Because one's going to carry all the weight and the other one's not going to be able to at all. This is what it means to be unequally yoked. Is in your calling, right, you have a purpose and God desires for you to fulfill something. An invitation to become the person that he wants you to be. There will be somebody else helping to complement a helpmate helping you with that calling. Now, how can you do that with a person who doesn't even believe in a God that you, you believe in? How can you do that when the person that you are, are um, in a relationship with believes the most important thing in your life is a fairy tale? How are you going to do that? That's the point that the Bible is making. Oftentimes, sadly, we always feel like we're the exception to the rule. But you think of Solomon, you think of Samson one of the wisest people in all of scripture. I say one of the wisest because Jesus is obviously the wisest. Samson, maybe the strongest person in scripture, and yet they both fell because they were deceived by pagan women, women that did not know the Lord God. Here's a great quote that I always use from Alistair Begg, who's another amazing pastor. He says this, to be unequally yoked means to be lacking true intimacy in anything that really matters. It's convicting, right? Now, what about missionary dating? 
right? Because you're thinking, well, if I can convincingly be a Christian, then it works out. Here's the challenge with that. And what I'm telling you to do is not to go up to all your friends that are doing this and be like, you know, Alan said that you're in an unequally yoked relationship and you need to end it right now. First of all, speak on your own behalf. Don't, don't drag me into this. <laughs> and the other thing, too, is like, don't worry about everybody else. Ask yourself before the Lord what your convictions are and, and how you're going to live this out, okay? Um, so, what was I saying? Unequally yoked relationship. Uh, that rarely happens to me. I lost my train of thought. I don't want you to. Missionary Dane, thank you. Man, that was bad. Must be getting old. Missionary dating. So the problem with missionary dating is this. Even if they become a Christian, they come to church, you're never really going to know whether or not they're a genuine believer because of you or because of their actual genuine relationship with the Lord. That's what makes it so difficult. They're coming to church. They seem like they love it. But you don't know if they did it just because of you. And that's your motivation. And if you broke up, if their relationship with the Lord would be shattered as well. So, just something to be cautious with. So not just someone who claims to be a Christian either. Because there can be people that are like, yeah, I'm a Christian. Sure. Yeah, I believe Jesus is God. They're like, great. Oh, gosh. Yeah, Alan scared me. But I asked them if they're a Christian. And they told me, yes, I am a Christian. <laughs> that's not what it means. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5 says this, that there are certain types of people that will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away, stay away from people like that. They are the kinds who work their way into people's homes and win the confidence of vulnerable women who are burdened with the guilt of sin and controlled by various desires. Such women are forever following new teachings, but they are never able to understand the truth. There's a danger in people being persuasive, wolves in sheep's clothing, where they come in and they see all the right things, they memorize Bible verses, but inwardly, they're just there for their own selfish gain, and they're in the relationship for the wrong reasons. And you got to be careful for that. Very easy to tell. Have an accountability group around you. Have older, wiser people speaking into your life and being honest with you about the person that you're in a relationship with or pursuing. Okay. Now that I just laid the heavy stuff on you, let's get to the fun part. Good guidelines for dating for ladies. We'll go ladies first, then we'll do guys. Here are some good guidelines, uh, things that you should be looking for, attributes you should be looking for in the person that you hope to marry one day. I'll keep it to three. There's many, but we'll keep it to three. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband, here's his role, okay, is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. How so? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, dying on the cross, selfless love, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that sh she should be holy and without blemish. 
So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does his church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Here are three takeaways from this little passage. The first guideline is that the man should be a leader, a leader in the home. So, if you are looking to date someone, be in a relationship with someone, number one, I would say look for a spiritual leader committed to his relationship with Jesus. It says that the man is supposed to be the head of the household, right? So they're supposed to be leading in the relationship, leading the times of prayer with the family, bringing the family to church, bringing the family into sanctification, into the knowledge of the Lord and knowledge of his grace. So what this does not mean is, um, I know a guy who's really cute and he read the Bible before. That's not what it means. Also, it does not mean that during the times of worship, you see the guy just raising his hands. And you're like, that guy. Totally. Yup. He loves the Lord. No. Here's the questions you should ask. How does he treat his family? Have you ever been over his house and he's talking back to his mom? He's argumentative. How does he treat younger people? Does he look at junior high kids? He's like, oh, junior highers, I hate them, right? Or is he a leader? Is he a spiritual mentor to younger people? Is he a servant? Is he someone that you can follow? Is he wise? Not necessarily smart, but is he wise? Does he make good decisions? See, because if you're always going to have to lead him now, guess what? It's going to fall in marriage as well. You're going ha- to have to be the person who always convinces people to go to church, convinces the family to be doing the devotions. You're always going to have to be pushing him. You might be thinking, well, if there's this one little area, if he just changes that, he'll be perfect. Guess what you're doing now? You are fantasizing about a person who doesn't exist in reality. You can't love somebody's potential. You have to love the person right in front of you. There are some people that will never become the potential that you hope out for them. And what you do is you make an idol out of them. That's exactly what it is. Idol is the worship of fantasy. You fantasize, thinking in your mind that one day this person is going to be the most godly person. If only they got these things right. There's no guarantee that they're going to get those things right. And if they're not doing them now, how do you know they're not going to do it later? So you need to make sure that they are right with the Lord and committed to the relationship with him. Number two, protector. Protector. Find a man who will protect you. And this is what it says, right? That he would present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but he sh- she should be holy and without blemish. So find a man who will protect you. It does not mean, does he have muscles? That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about find a guy who will not take advantage of you. Someone who guards your purity, guards your heart. Is not looking to escalate physically, isn't looking to escalate in the relationship, is patient. That's what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? Love is patient. And if he's not exhibiting that, he's not exhibiting love. Our job as guys is to be making sure that we are, as we talked about last week, guarding her heart. It's our responsibility to make sure that she's safe, not taking anything away from her, only seeking to give, especially when we're not married. 
We're just looking to protect them and to guard them from any type of impurity. So that also means honesty and integrity. You're looking for a person who has honesty and integrity. If he lies to your friends, I got news for you, he will probably lie to you. So you want to look for a person who's honest. Lastly, for ladies, a provider. So leader, protector, and provider. So ask yourself this question. Is this person a hard worker? Or are they lazy? They procrastinate. They never get anything done. They're never where they show up to be. Or they never show up to be. That doesn't make sense. They never show up where they've committed to be. They never do what they say they're going to do. And then finally underneath that, will this person, person, <laughs> oh, Lord, maybe it's time I retire. I'm getting too old. Will this person nourish you in the word of God? That's the question. We're supposed to be washing, as husbands, washing our wives in the water of the word, sanctifying them, showing them more of the scripture, having godly conversation. Do you have a godly conversation with this person or is it awkward? You start talking about what you've been reading, what God is speaking to you, and it's kind of weird. That's the type of person that you should be looking for. So guys, you should be taking notes too. You should be like, that's what I aim to do. Because if you want a godly wife, someone that loves Jesus, we need to be taking the lead and owning up to those things that the Bible says that we're supposed to do. I didn't make this up. Okay, it's in the Bible. Okay, guidelines for men. Turn to Proverbs chapter 31. Yeah, you're like, my favorite chapter. <laughs> Proverbs 31, the subject of every woman's Bible study ever. Where is Proverbs? Somewhere here. I know, I know, I'm just kidding. You think I don't know the Bible? Come on, I'm a pastor. Okay. <laughs> Obviously, we're not going to read this. I like all of it. I'm just going to pull out a couple highlights, okay? I'll make it really simple. There's only one guideline for men. They just have to be beautiful. I'm kidding. <laughs> no. Let's pray. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> what? Now, hold on. I was only half joking. Let me clarify. The first guideline is that they are beautiful, but not the type of beauty that the world defines as beauty. It is to be an inner beauty, okay? See, I tricked you. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 30. Read it. Verse 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. So find a, find a woman, guys, speaking to you now, find a woman who spends less time in front of the mirror than she does in front of the word of God and in his presence. Find a, find a person who's willing to be in the presence of the Lord and letting his image transform, uh, transform hers. And that's the thing that we should be seeking, the inner beauty. As it's been said, bay ain't bay if bay don't pray. Okay. Advice. Bring it in. We're bringing it into a close here. Let's land the plane, guys. Okay. Advice to the ladies. I'm speaking to you now. What I would say is, seriously now, 
Um, don't go out of your way to grab a guy's attention. Seek instead to do what the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3, right? It says this. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourselves instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They trusted God and accepted the authority of their husbands. I love that. Beautify yourself inside. Not, I'm not saying that you don't have to be beautiful outside. I'm not saying that you can't dress nice and whatever. But make the emphasis what's inside of your heart. I can tell you objectively as a man that women, I mean, there's beautiful women anywhere, right? Physically, a lot of beautiful women. But a woman who loves Jesus and is in love with Jesus so much to the point that you can see it in the way that she talks, the way that she acts, that person is rare. And this is what the Bible says, right? Verse 10. Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. This is what we are seeking as Hopefully, as godly men here in this room, you're seeking a wife, a person who loves Jesus. And that beauty just completely emanates from her entire being. Now, on the, the reverse, I've seen this happen time and time again, especially in my own life. A woman can be beautiful, but she opens her mouth, and you're just, like, not attracted at all. Because she's, she has a filthy mouth. She's not speaking about the things of the Lord. You know, her heart isn't, you know... Uh, sold out for Jesus, and she has no idea of her identity and calling. That's the most unattractive thing, I think. And that's why you want to be able to find the right things so you attract the right type of person. You eventually are going to attract the type of person that you want to attract. If you're emphasizing your outward beauty, you're going to get a person who's very shallow, right? But if you're working on your inner beauty, you're going to obtain a person who is looking for that. Okay, so beauty. Second thing is diligence. Diligence. Once again, going back to that concept of the helpmate. So in verse 27 of Proverbs 31, it says this. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her, her husband also, and he praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. So guys, find someone who is hardworking, but also submissive. A person who works hard, does things well. Someone who's passionate, but also is willing to be submissive. Part of the curse in Genesis chapter 3 verse 16 says, your desire shall be for your husband to the woman and he shall rule over you. Part of the curse is that the woman would always try to usurp authority over the man. But to find submission is a challenging thing. And that's what God desires, is to be passionate, but also be submissive. And that's another Bible study we'll talk about later. Thirdly and lastly, compassion. Compassion. Find a woman who's compassionate, especially for us guys who do not have any compassion. You need someone to balance you out. Verse 20 of Proverbs 31 says, She extends her hand to the poor, and she stretches out her hands to the needy. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 13, what we learn is there are women, there are people of all kinds that instead of being generous and compassionate, they're always seeking out the worst in others. So in, in 1 Timothy it says, besides these women learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, 
not only idle, but gossips and busy, busybodies saying things which they ought not. That is not the image we want. We're always interested in gossip, always interested in, in the latest dirt on everybody else. Don't be that person. Instead, believe the best about others and seek to um, be compassionate towards them. All right, so in conclusion, for both genders, here's what we're supposed to be seeking. Not being lazy, but being diligent, being good stewards of our time, being good stewards of our singleness, making the most of it. Not someone who's moping around saying like, oh, I wonder when I'm going to get married. Just like, you don't want to be around that person. Find a person who is working on their relationship with the Lord primarily now so that they're ready for marriage later. So, remember, if these guidelines are very hard, you only have to marry one. In a sense, it's okay to be picky because you're not marrying everybody. You just need to find the one person that God has for you. And here's where I'm going to throw in the curveball because I said there's no such thing as a one. But I want to kind of take that back for a second. The very last thing I'm going to say, and then we'll close out and pray. Um, although for a long time I thought, like, you know, maybe there's no one, and that's kind of foolish. You have to make a wise decision. You can pick who you want, and God will bless it, whatever. I thought about it. I was like, do I really believe that? Because we believe, obviously, that you can't just be whoever you want to be. But God actually desires for you to become something. That God has a purpose in mind when he created you. Right? Like, I don't believe that God could have made, like, I, like, God called me to be a pastor. It's not the fact that I could have just been, like, anybody I want. But God desires for me to do something. And it's the same thing for you. He's desiring a very specific calling on your life. Now, if he has a, a very specific calling on your life, why think that when it comes to the second most important decision you'll ever make about who you're going to spend the rest of the calling with, that God has no opinion about it? You're just like, sure, whatever, I'll make it work. I just feel like... Probably a healthy balance is to take guidelines, use what's in the Bible to make wise decisions, but also prayerfully seek God's favor as you seek a relationship. And ask God, you know what, Lord, I know, like, I don't know how foreknowledge works, I don't know how this all works, like, in your plans and stuff, but I understand that just as you have a calling on my life, you have a calling on someone else's life, and you want us to be together so we can both be complementary and I want to know if you have an opinion about that as it pertains to me. So as you're seeking the Lord, you will find it. And I'm sure that he will bless it. That's it. Let's pray.